Welcome to today's podcast of Pursuing Justice. I am Harriet Hendel, a member of the board of directors of the Innocence Project of Florida. And these last few uh, podcasts, we are talking about a very specific case. Um, So we have spoken to Shelley Thibodeau, who is uh, the director of the Conviction Integrity Unit out of Jacksonville. And we have asked her to return because there's so much more uh, in the case that we have been discussing to talk about. The case um, focuses on an uncle and his nephew. The uncle is Clifford Williams Jr. and his nephew, Hubert Nathan Myers. They spent 43 years behind bars as innocent men. And in March of 2019, they walked out of prison thanks to the collaboration and the tireless work of the Innocence Project of Florida and the brand new Conviction Integrity Unit, which is the first unit of its kind in the state of Florida. So we are going to continue talking about the case with Shelley. Shelley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me back. All right. It's a pleasure. Um, we Maybe what you could do for us is maybe recap a little bit of what we spoke about on the last podcast in case um, the listeners didn't, uh, didn't tune in. And even if they did, um, kind of helps to review uh, what we talked about in in brief uh, about the Conviction Integrity Unit and maybe how you picked up this particular case, given you tell me that you uh, receive so many letters. Um, how, how about how many letters a month do you, do you think you get from uh, people in prison? So um, I, I probably know better figures for the year. So last year we received 200 inquiries. Mm-hmm. This wow. year so far, we've received about 225, and, um, you know, so I'm not sure what that breaks okay. down into, you know, weekly or monthly, but yeah, it's it's a lot of uh, correspondence that we receive. Yes, you do, and you said in the last podcast that um, mostly you hear from inmates, and of course, they don't have email, so they have to write you a letter. And uh, That's that correct. Is- that's how it so goes. They, they write a letter and when we write back and then we wait for information from them. So it's kind of a back and forth. So, um, yeah, I'm the director of the Conviction Integrity Unit at the state attorney's office in Jacksonville, Florida. Our jurisdiction uh, is Nassau, Clay and Duval counties. So we're northeast Florida. And um, we were talking about the Nathan Myers and Clifford Williams case. And the last time we spoke, I was discussing the fact that Nathan Myers was in custody and had sent a letter into the Conviction Integrity Unit asking if we would review his case. And so, you know, the the letter was truly, really interesting to me. And he had raised, you know, several issues, primarily that there was some physical evidence that he argued would exculpate him or exonerate him. Um, The fact that he had some alibi witnesses that weren't called at his trial and uh, the fact that somebody else had confessed 20 years, you know, after the fact that that he, in fact, was the person who had committed the 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 homicide. So Nathan Myers and Clifford Williams case is um, they were convicted of 
murder, of homicide and attempted homicide. And so it's, it's really complicated, Harriet. And so if there's something that I failed to mention and you want me to, you know, stop and clarify, please do. But in essence, um, the victims are two women who were living together at the time and they lived in an apartment in a, in their bedroom fronted the street that they lived on. And so um, on May the 2nd of 1976, there was a birthday party down the street from where these two women lived. And Nathan Myers and Clifford Williams were attending the birthday party. And so the, the birthday party um, was attended by a number of people. People were kind of coming and going. It was very lively. There were about 30 people at the party. Um, and it had started, I don't know, 10 o'clock at night and was going well into the evening hours. So while the revelers were at the birthday party, they heard shots being fired, you know, from somewhere close by. And the people at the birthday party, you know, stopped for a minute, um, looked at each other to try to figure out what was going on. You know, shots in this area of Jacksonville weren't completely unheard of, but again, not common. Um, So it got their attention. And Clifford Williams supposedly went outside to see what was going on. Maybe Nathan Myers accompanied him. Some of the other people looked around, didn't see anything and came back in. And what's really interesting about that is, you know, that that people took notice of the fact that Clifford and Nathan were in the party with them at the time that the shots were fired. So the police then come shortly thereafter, and people at the party are told, hey, the police are down the street. And so the whole party comes out of the apartment, and they walk down the street to where these two women were living. And Nathan Myers um, was 18 years old at the time, but he had actually been staying in that apartment periodically. So he lived at home with his parents, but he would also stay at the apartment he had just graduated from high school and I think was kind of you know, spreading his wings, so to speak, and they had an extra bedroom there, and he knew a bunch of people on that block, and so he was kind of coming and going. So when he saw that the police were at the apartment, he then approached, said that, you know, I stay here, what's going on? And the police actually asked him to go inside and identify um, the decedent. And so Nathan Myers went inside, identified the decedent as um, Jeanette Williams, came back out and sort of announced to the crowd, oh, my gosh, you know, Jeanette is deceased. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, like I mentioned, there were two women, and one of the women had managed to – had survived and had managed to get out of the apartment and found herself to the hospital. While she's at the hospital, she then communicates to a police officer there that the assailants were Clifford Williams and Nathan Myers. And while the police are still on scene investigating the homicide, and there's this crowd standing around, of course, Nathan Myers and Clifford Williams are in the crowd, and they're actually arrested, you know, right then. So within you know, an hour or so of the the shooting, they're arrested. And there was no relationship between the, um, there are two Williamses in the case, right? That's correct. They, they're not, they're not related. For that yeah. reason, but they are not yeah. related. Right, that was important um, to say. Go ahead. They're friends, you know, this is like an, an area of town, people kind of know each other, but they're not related. 
Um, so Nathan Myers and Clifford Williams go down to the police station. Their hands are actually swabbed to see if they had fired a gun recently. You know, it's, it's a gunshot mm-hmm. residue test is sure. done on their hands. And it is sent off um, to a lab, and it does not – it's not positive for, for gunshot powder. They tell the police, you know, we heard the shooting, but we, you know, we aren't the perpetrators. We were down at the party. There are people from the party that night that tell the police, um, you know, they were with us. Why are you arresting these two guys? They were with us at the party. And what's really interesting is before the survivor identifies them as the perpetrators, the police, you know, were out at the scene and they're, you know, making notes about what they see. And so they see um, that the bedroom window, the glass of the bedroom window is shattered. There's a metal screen on the bedroom window and there's a hole in the screen and the prongs are sort of pointing in towards the bedroom. There's glass on the bed. So the police document glass on the bed. So there's these, these, oh, and a, a bullet strike in the window frame. So there are these physical findings that the police are making note of. But then, of course, Nina Marshall then says who her perpetrators are, and the arrest is made. Um, so that's kind of where it all gets very complicated. You know, you can I could sort of see as I'm, I'm reviewing this case where the police had come in, they're looking at the evidence, and they're making notes of physically what they're seeing. And then, of course, Nina identifies them as the perpetrators. And so all of that physical um, evidence that they had originally noted – was sort of put to the side mm-hmm. um, because Nina says that they came inside the apartment, came into the bedroom, had positioned themselves at the foot of the bed and had fired, both of them had fired shots, you know, towards her and Jeanette Williams. Um, so a completely different scenario mm-hmm. then of, you know, what the physical evidence was indicating that the shots had come through the bedroom window. Right. Totally different, yeah. Totally Completely different. Different scenario of uh, you know how how this crime took place. Now um, you mentioned Nina Marshall. Um, she was the survivor of the uh, the incident, right? Yes. And, and yeah. So where? All right. So she she makes a pretty strong statement that these two men did this. Uh, where does the case go from there with her okay. witness identification, so to speak? Misidentification is more accurate, well, right? <laughs> very, very powerful testimony. You know, that I know my perpetrators because we all know each other, and I saw them in the bedroom shooting at me. Very powerful. But the police then um, recover the projectiles. So, you know, regrettably... Jeanette Williams is shot four times and Nina Marshall is shot twice and they're able to recover the projectiles. So they then send the projectiles off to the crime lab to have them analyzed. And I'm sure what they would have expected was that they would, there would be two different types of projectiles, two different types of bullets that would come back and that the analyst would have indicated, you know, from fired from two different guns, right? But what mm-hmm. ultimately happens is the analyst says that these are all 38 caliber um, projectiles, bullets, and they all appear to have tool markings on them um, to suggest that they were fired by one gun. Mm. 
And so, you know, as I'm starting to look at this, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm looking at it from the perspective, you know, can I corroborate what Nina Marshall testified to, what she said? But all of the physical evidence, as I'm going through all of the physical evidence, you know, none of the physical evidence is corroborating her story, her testimony. So there's nothing in the physical evidence to actually suggest that there were two shooters. So, you know, it, it's, it's an enclosed space. So presumably all of the projectiles were discoverable, you know, could have been located. They did locate six. And of course, this is a revolver because there weren't any um, shell casings um, thrown out of the, the gun. So presumably a revolver. It's a 38. And so we're able to account for all six. So then I start looking at, so Nina testified that um, they had gone to bed looking at the television and the television is at the foot of the bed and that Jeanette Williams had gone to sleep on her right side. So, you know, not on her stomach, not on her back, but actually positioned on her right side, which is really became a very important piece of information because had the perpetrators come through the bedroom door and had shot from the foot of the bed as described by Nina Marshall, you would have expected that one of these ladies, if not both, would have been shot from the front, you know, from the the front of their person. Mm-hmm. And all of the entrance wounds were on the backside of, of their bodies. Mm. And so the backside then of Jeanette Williams would have been actually closest to the window. And so we tried to, in our mind's eye, figure out if, in fact, the shooters are from the foot of the bed, how are they shot on the back on the back yeah. side? And so we really spent a lot of time, and we did some computer um, modeling, trying to figure out if there was a scenario that would allow for these women to have gotten shot on their backsides. You know, had the shooters come through the bedroom, you know, door. Door. Mm-hmm. And we really, we couldn't get it to work. I mean, it, the trajectory just wasn't right. We couldn't get it to work. Then we started modeling from the bedroom window. And, you know, we were able to get all of the, the bullets being shot from the bedroom window um, to match the trajectory, uh, you know, of the entrance wounds and exit wounds and all of those sorts of things. And then a really, another really piece of valuable information came when we consulted with our medical examiner here locally. We went to see the medical examiner and we asked her to look at the photos that had been taken back in 1976 by the medical examiner there. And there is an entrance wound to the decedent, Jeanette Williams, on the back of her arm. And what was really interesting about that, it's, a, it's an irregular entrance wound. And so when the medical examiner looked at that photograph, you know, like almost immediately she said, well, that's really interesting. That's an irregular entrance wound, which means that the projectile had to have hit something and then it starts to tumble prior to entering. And then when it enters, it doesn't make a nice round circular entrance wound. It has kind of this odd shaped entrance wound. Hmm. And of course we were, we were like, of course, you know, because if it's shot through the bedroom window, then the, the bullet has to go through the glass and the metal screen, and maybe it hit the um, the window frame where they thought that there was a strike. And if that's the case, it starts to tumble, and it hits Jeanette Williams in the arm, and it leaves that very distinctive entrance wound, uh, 
entrance wound, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's another entrance wound right under below that one. And it then is that circular entrance wound. So now there's no glass and no metal frame and it's, there's, there's no intervening object and you start getting the circular entrance wounds. And so we were like, aha, because then we were trying to figure out if in fact the men had fired from the foot of the bed, what intervening object would there have been between, you know, the foot of the bed and Jeanette Williams and there's nothing. There's nothing. Right, the victim. There's nothing. There's no intervening object that the bullet would have hit to tumble. And so it really then started to solidify in our minds that for whatever reason, um, her story just wasn't accurate. But and another her, really Okay, sorry, go ahead. Ahead. no, you, you finish your sentence. <laughs> well, I was gonna say another another really big piece for us was the glass on the bed that had been noted by mm. the detectives. That's right. You know, what women are going to sleep with glass on their bed. <laughs> Not really. You know, like that just didn't make any sense to us. And so we, because, you know, there was an argument, maybe that hole had been, um, had occurred on on another occasion. Like that wasn't, you know, a new event and that the hole had been there and they just hadn't gotten it fixed for whatever reason. But we were like, but there's glass on the bed, you know, like, right. And, and the window, the, the bed was below the window. And so you know, it made sense that if the projectiles had come through, broken the glass, the glass had fallen out, you know, the, the object below the window was in fact the bed. So, you know, then we started thinking, oh my gosh, this is really interesting. We've really got something here. So mm-hmm. then we started um, trying to find the people from the party, you know, the, the witnesses from 40 years ago. And as you witnesses can imagine. That hadn't been called, right? <laughs> right. So the, many, yeah. They hadn't been called, although in Florida, luckily, we, um, you, you take depositions in cases. And so some of these witnesses had been deposed in 1976, and so I was able to read what they would have testified to, even though they weren't called at trial. And we spent probably six months trying to track down the people from the party. And, you know, some, some of them had very... Um, uh, ordinary names, if I can say such a thing, you know, like Bob Smith. And so we were trying to track down, you know, Bob Smith, who might have been such and such an age in 1976. And oh, my gosh, it just was like Herculean effort to track down these witnesses. And so um, many of them couldn't remember the specific details, like what they were wearing or what they were eating. But they all remembered, you know, Clifford Williams and Nathan Myers being at the party um, you know, we, we discussed with them their depositions and, you know, they, they said, if I said it in 1976, then that's, that's, that's right. That was accurate. That's what happened. And, you know, there had been some thought, you know, that maybe these alibi witnesses were coming forward on behalf of Clifford Williams and Nathan Myers. And so I thought, well, maybe, you know, they would tell me, no, you know, we were paid to be an alibi witness, right? There's like, there's some amount of skepticism when we talk about alibi witnesses, Um, and, you know, maybe they would tell me that they had been paid to be an alibi witness or they had been coerced or threatened to be an alibi witness. And if that's what they told me, I probably would have at that point in time stopped my investigation. But in fact, Mm -hmm. none of them told me that, you know, they all said, you know, we were at this party. We were friends with these two women that lived down the street from us. You know, these were our neighbors. 
and we were friendly with them. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't know what happened, but these two men were in the birthday party with us. And so I was able to find several witnesses, um, from 1976 that, that could remember that. And so, so then we started, we had the physical evidence that was leaning towards the theory that in fact, the shooting occurred at the window and not inside as described by Nina Marshall, we now are getting corroboration from the alibi witnesses that, in fact, they did remember Nathan and Clifford being at the party. So then we started to investigate um, the fact that a man had confessed to it 20 years later, this, this gentleman by the name of Nathaniel Lawson. And so um, Nathan Myers had, had a childhood friend who still lives in Jacksonville. And over the years, he had sort of heard, you know, by way of rumor or whatnot, that Nathaniel Lawson was the one who had committed the crime. And other people had approached him over the years. You know, oh, you know, Nathaniel Lawson said something to me that made me think he was the shooter. And so this gentleman then became a resource for me and got me in touch with some of the other people from the neighborhood who had had contact with this gentleman, because now the this gentleman had passed in 1994, and there was no way for me to now interview right. him. Um, really. So I'm I'm left to interview, you know, friends and family and anybody else that I can locate. You know, did he ever mention anything like this to you? So I had the one statement from the gentleman in prison that had spoken to Nathan Myers, and then I'm out interviewing other people, and I was able to uh, locate three other people who were friendly with Nathaniel Lawson, who's, who's told me, yes, he had told them that he was in fact the perpetrator and, you know, they were friends of his. And, and one person told me, you know, I would have never come forward and told anybody that he was the perpetrator, except for the fact that you're now asking and he's deceased. So I don't feel like I, I can't disclose it. Um, and uh, one of them was uh, Clifford Williams' brother. He, too, oh. you know, living in that neighborhood, had heard rumors and had confronted him at one point in time. Um, and Nathaniel Lawson had acknowledged to, to Clifford's brother that he, in fact, was the perpetrator. Um, and then there was another person that he had disclosed to. So in total, I was able to find four people that he had disclosed to. Wow. And so I'm still like, uh, you know, what do you do with that information? I mean, I, I can't really confirm it. I can't question him about it. I certainly wouldn't hang my hat on it. But Harriet, the really interesting thing is I'm then rereading the trial transcripts and all of the depositions. And I get to the deposition of, you know, somebody who had been out there that night and had been deposed in 1976. And the prosecutor at the time, I think, asked just kind of an offhand question, like, you know, who did you leave the party with or who did you leave the area with when you left that night? And this person discloses, you know, I, I left with my friend Cookie. I left with a guy named Rico Rivers. And I also left with Nathaniel Lawson. And oh I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know. Wow. So the first time I read it, it wasn't significant to me because I didn't have any context for it. But then when I went back and I reread all of this information and I see Nathaniel Lawson's name being mentioned by somebody in 1976, you know, so now I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I can actually tie him to the scene that night. Wow. And the prosecutor didn't have any context. 
So he didn't know to ask a follow-up question, you know, where did Nathaniel Lawson come from and why was he there? And, you know, there was no follow-up question. Mm. Um, But I was at least able to tie him to, you know, the scene, independent of the people that I had spoken to that he had confessed to. So, I, you know, I ended up giving that, you know, some amount of significance again, I don't know that you could exonerate somebody based on that Just alone, on that. but mm-hmm. right. But we've got all this other information. So what was the, what would you say was the heaviest piece of information that flipped this case over after all those years? What, what convinced you of the fact that they had uh, been wrongly convicted? You know, I, I, I think it was the forensics and the physical oh, evidence. Okay. Um, right. You know, I don't know, you know, that I, I could have relied just on the alibis. I, I mm-hmm. certainly wouldn't have relied just on the gentleman confessing, right. you know, 20 years later, but the forensics was really powerful. So in addition to, yeah, all that we talked about, I ended up doing an experiment and we went out um, to the house and do we have, we still have some time here. We, we, we have out. very little time. So <laughs> go, ahead. go ahead. I mean, this is just such a fascinating case. It is. It is. We actually went to a salvage yard and bought an, a metal screen, you know, cause now they're made out of, you know, fabric and mesh or whatever we, but we bought mm-hmm. a metal screen and we shot a 38 caliber revolver through the metal metal screen to see one. Can you get six shots through a hole. And then, you know, what does the damage look like when you, when you do that? And it was really crazy because the damage that we got on our screen very much mimicked the damage on the screen from 1976. And then we also did a a sound experiment. We shot a 38 inside the bedroom to see if the party goers could have heard that. If in fact, as Nina discussed, it had occurred inside the bedroom and we couldn't hear it from down the street at the party. And then we shot a 38 caliber um, revolver outside the bedroom and we could hear it clear as day down the street where the party was located. So we did these other things just to try to, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's. Yeah. That's, that's really uh, incredible that after all of that, you wonder what the original prosecutors were were doing that they didn't dig as deep as you did uh, who knows uh, what happened so many years ago but certainly uh, the results of what you did um, sprung Nathan Myers and, and his uncle Clifford Williams out of prison after all those years so you certainly did phenomenal work and uh, as I've said so often uh, the gift of freedom is priceless and that's very much what you gave to them so oh, this, well, this, well thank you and, this was and, wonderful um, well thanks and if your listeners actually have some interest we are I did a 70 page report kind of setting forth everything that we did in this case so that people would understand how we came to our conclusion you know I, there was a concern for me that people would think you know we're just letting people out of prison but in fact I mean this this was a really well um, investigated case. And I'm very confident in, in the conclusion. And so if they want to go onto our website, they can actually okay. look at the report that we produced in this case. And what, what is the website, Shelley? The website is www.sao4th.com. What is and that? there's a link. 
to conviction integrity. So SAO, so State Attorney's Office. Oh, okay. And we're considered the fourth judicial circuit, so 4th.com. Okay, Mm -hmm. .com. Wonderful. Okay, terrific. Well, I so appreciate your time today and the fact that you took us through this case from the very beginning to the end, and certainly the results were positive, and that's what really matters, that these two men can begin their lives uh, all over again. So thank you once again for your expertise and your time, and uh, we enjoyed speaking with you today. Thank you, Shelley. Thank you, Harriet. Anytime. Take care. All right. You too. And I hope you'll join us next time on Pursuing Justice. What's it doing? Designing my new 2021 Nissan Kicks Online in the Kicks Color Studio. I give each a special name. This one's electric blue, orange, red, white. I call it the gumball machine. You think it's me? I feel like you're more of a red velvet guy. Limitless possibilities. With over 100 million available color combinations and Bose Personal Plus system in the boldly new 2021 Nissan Kicks. Bose is the registered trademark of the Bose Corporation. Color combinations include interior and exterior colors. Customization is an available feature subject to availability at participating Nissan dealers. See dealer for details.